Review of Systems is taking the week off for the holidays. Please enjoy this show from our archive, or you can find other old shows at www.rospod.org. Welcome to Review of Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano. This week, we are joined by Dave Chokshi. Dave is the Chief Population Health Officer of One City Health and Senior Assistant Vice President at New York City Health and Hospitals, the largest public health care system in the U.S. He practices primary care at Bellevue Hospital and is a Clinical Associate Professor of Population Health and Medicine at the NYU School of Medicine. We talk about what population health is, how it is distinct from public health, and what value it adds to our healthcare system. We talk about how, in some ways, it might contribute to the erosion of relationships between primary care providers and patients, and how that can be remedied. You can find links to all the articles we reference in our conversation, and more information about our guest on our website, www.rospod.org. We used one word frequently, but didn't pause to define it for our listeners, attribution. Attribution is the assignment of a specific patient to a specific primary care physician in the health system. Once a patient is attributed to a PCP or healthcare system, that PCP and healthcare system is held accountable for that patient's quality measures and costs within ACOs or other alternative payment contracts. This still applies to patients who don't frequently access the healthcare system through traditional channels or most frequently see specialists who have never even seen the assigned PCP. It's therefore at times controversial. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us wherever you listen and share us on social media. We tweet at ROS Podcast and you can find us on Facebook. Please drop me a line at Audrey at ROSPod.org. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Audrey. I appreciate your having me. Can you define population health management for us? I think it's a term that we hear used a lot and we, we talk about, but maybe we don't know how it's defined precisely. Yes. Um, you know, look, I'm, I'm a primary care doctor, as you know and as you are, um, and so I, I think about um, these somewhat abstract concepts uh, in terms of uh, the patients that I take care of. Um, so, for example, there's a patient uh, who I've been seeing for uh, the last few years um, who initially presented with uncontrolled diabetes and severe retinopathy. Um, you know, I learned a little bit about his living situation, found out that uh, he's a computer programmer, so, uh, so mostly, you know, lived his life at home. Uh, and the most human contact he would get uh, was actually uh, just people who would come by to deliver his food every day. Um, and so the first time he came to the clinic, uh, he had uh, very high blood sugar um, and, and this retinopathy. And we've been able to get his diabetes under control over the subsequent months. Um, but unfortunately, his retinopathy has progressed and he is, uh, you know, on the the path to becoming legally blind, unfortunately. Mm. Um, So that's one example that comes to mind. Uh, Another one is uh, another of my patients um, who is uh, homeless. He lives in a shelter uh, in the Bronx, uh, also has uncontrolled diabetes, but also bipolar disorder, Mm. uh, and visited the emergency room uh, dozens of times in the the two years before uh, he established primary care at our clinic. 
Um, and so it's patients like that who, who kind of bring to mind what uh, the promise of population health is. Um, and I would say that the common thread is really the delivery of more proactive care um, that can address avoidable human suffering. So taking a step back from all of the, you know, sort of the jargon that one can hear in population health, that's really uh, what it means to me. Um, I'll also say, you know, I, I think you're right that um, population health is kind of this eye of the beholder term. You know, it means different things to different people. Um, and I would say from the healthcare perspective, you know, it generally refers to managing the health and cost outcomes of a defined uh, population that's attributed to a health system, right. whereas in public health, um, it encompasses more of the aggregate uh, health status of all people in a given geographic area. Um, and I think what, what our task is, is to converge those two definitions so that, uh, so that there's actually a common language when we talk about population health, whether from the healthcare system perspective or in public health. Okay. So you had alluded to there are some, in some situations, kind of financial implications when you talk about population health management it has a lot to do with ACLs and um, value-based payment contracts. Can you talk a little bit about the financial piece of this and how specifically primary care physicians might see a difference in their paycheck based on, you know, different ways of looking at population health management? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a, a big part of the impetus for population health management um, is value-based payment, which, uh, you know, stated simply is, um, is, is trying to better manage the healthcare dollar to optimize the health outcomes that we get, you know, for the health spending that we have. Mm -hmm. um, so in my mind, value-based payment and population health management are really two sides of the same coin, you know, mm -hmm. to, to deliver on value-based payment contracts, we need to do population health effectively. Um, and I can talk a little bit about, you know, our experience at uh, New York City Health and Hospitals, where I work, um, which is the largest public health care system in the country. Uh, we take care of about 1.2 million patients across the five boroughs of New York City. Um, you know, functionally, we, we take care of the poor and the working class uh, of New York City. Um, and as with many other large health systems, we're thinking about uh, how to respond to the new value-based payment environment um, and how to structure our population health approach around that. Um, and what I've kind of uh, converged on is an approach that consists of, uh, of five elements. Um, to, to deliver on population health. So I'll just enumerate them briefly. Mm -hmm. um, the first is actually identifying who our attributed population is. You know, how do we wrap our arms around the patients uh, who we are responsible for and accountable for? Um, the second is to then stratify that attributed population by their risk of adverse outcomes. This is, you know, we talk about risk stratification, again, kind of a an overly complex term for something that is really simply just triage in medicine. You know, how do we make sure the sickest patients get the most, um, uh, most intensive care? Um, then the third piece is meeting patients where they are, um, which I think of as, 
not all patients are going to come to our doors in the way that we have organized healthcare delivery. Right. So that means our responsibility as a health system is actually to get out into communities um, and to partner with uh, you know institutions that may be more trusted than uh, than the healthcare system in a given community. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth piece is a grounding in high quality ambulatory care, particularly primary care. Uh, and behavioral health. And we can talk a little bit more about how there's been systematic underinvestment in those areas within Mm -hmm. uh, the healthcare system. And so it's sort of right-sizing that balance. And then the final piece is is using data to guide uh, care delivery and drive change. And this is really, um, you know, uh, trying to uh, build on the promise that we've heard uh, about, um, about big data uh, or even small data, you know, trying to um, make that actionable uh, so that uh, the people who are actually taking care of patients on the front lines have the information that they need at their fingertips. You know, that sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful in the abstract. But, you know, in the clinic, like the day-to-day experience of a primary care doctor, you know, how how do you see them optimally experiencing and participating in population health? Because, you know, I'll be honest, it, how I've experienced it in some situations, and I think a lot of other providers are getting emailed a list of patients who need A1Cs or colonoscopies, you know, checking boxes, telling us, telling people who we think needs to come in, who should just get a lab mm-hmm. so that, you know, we can meet our targets by the end of each quarter or whatever. And um, I, I get it. I, I support the idea of population health management, and I want my patients to get what they need um, to stay healthy, but it just seems like more. <laughs> administrative, uncompensated administrative tasks for the primary care doctor that, you know, I think it does not further the relationship with the patient, you know, the fragmentation of the relationship between the primary care doctor and the patient, I think is what's driving a lot of the problems in primary care. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how is this best done to improve, improve the relationships with patients? Yeah, um, these these are great questions. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay at a high level for a moment, and then I'm gonna drill down to um, to some of your more specific questions. First, what I would say is, you know, we we sort of started by mapping out the spectrum where we have healthcare on one side and then public health on the other side, and we're we're trying to bring the two closer together. And um, I think another way to think about population health management is basically a step from healthcare toward public health. Um, And the way that we have to measure that sort of at the national level, or at least one of the ways to measure it at the national level is is, um, whether that means we're actually gonna start investing more in primary care. So right now we spend about five to 7% of total healthcare spending uh, on primary care. Uh, And I think if, if population health management succeeds over the next few years, we'll see that proportion go up uh, significantly, mm. um, you know, on the order of, of doubling that overall investment in primary care. Um, but, but to get to your, you know, sort of the, um, the crux of what does it mean in the clinic, you know, and how do, how do primary care uh, physicians and care teams actually experience that? Um, I think these are very real questions about uh, whether, you know, we're just adding more administrative tasks uh, on the shoulders of, of primary care doctors. 
Um, what comes to mind for me is there was a, a really um, well-done study published in, in Annals last year, you may remember, um, showing that for every hour um, spent with patients, uh, physicians actually spend two hours mm-hmm. on uh, electronic health records yeah. and desk work. We did, a, um, we did a journal club about that. If anyone's interested, you can go back in our archive and find it. It's a great oh, wonderful, wonderful. and her team. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, you know, so I think we, uh, the first task is not to worsen that, um, that ratio, you know, that's, uh, that's completely uh, um, upside down, you know, with respect to um, the fact that to do population health well, it does rely on uh, this foundation of a solid relationship between uh, patients and their clinicians. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, I think one of the solutions is is team-based care, um, you know, making sure that not all of the ways that we're trying to um, broaden the scope of what we're doing in healthcare falls just on the primary care doctor or even on the primary care team. Um, so I think, you know, there's the, the sort of, um, you know, the direct team that a primary care physician may work with, the nurse, the medical assistant, you know, a clerk. Um, but then there's also the need for embedded resources within each uh, clinic that can do some of the other things that we're talking about with respect to delivering more intensive care um, to high-need patients or to doing the outreach that's necessary, you know, for patients with uncontrolled chronic disease who actually need to be brought in. Um, And the the other thing I'll say on this point is that a lot of what makes population health effective should be um, kind of a back-end service or or actually behind the scenes for clinicians. And this is where where the promise of technology has not delivered for us. Um, We should be getting actionable data to the point of care at the time that it's required. So for example, you know, one, one initiative that we've really focused on is our clinical huddles in primary care and making sure that, um, that the nurses or the medical assistants who are running those huddles uh, at the beginning of every session actually have at their fingertips you know, all of the information they need to paint a picture of what's gonna be the most important things to focus on during that encounter. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so those are, you know, some of the elements of, of making population health something that happens more in the background that actually Mm -hmm. feels like it is empowering, uh, the relationships between patients and care teams. The other objection I've heard a lot, um, with population health management and this idea of holding physicians more accountable and care systems more accountable is, has to do with attribution and, uh, you know, patients who utilize a lot of services. You know, I think everyone has had this experience of having a patient who, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like I could pitch a tent in this one patient's yard and stay there and, you know, help him take his medications every day and give him his insulin. And he would still go to the emergency room like once a week. And, you know, yeah. I, I hear people say it's not fair or reasonable to hold me responsible through quality metrics or financially for patients who you know, constantly choose to go to the emergency room, even though we try to accommodate them, we have extra visits, you know, they see the nurse on alternating weeks with me, you know, all of these things that people are really trying to do. Um, mm. So so what do you say to, to objections like that? Yeah, I, again, I, you know, I feel I feel a lot of empathy um, for that just based on on my own practice. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, Jeff Brenner, uh, you know, the, the co-founder of the um, Camden Coalition, uh, has a great quote about this. He says, you know, the only person who has actually changed someone else's life is their mother, you know, and it sort of exemplifies just like how in, intense um, the, the level of, of uh, care has to be, you know, to address some of our most complex patients. Um, but I interpret that in a little bit of a different way also, which is we, we really have to start spreading this responsibility beyond, um, beyond individual doctors uh, and even in some cases beyond, you know, the, the um, care team that's responsible for patients. Part of it, of course, is patient engagement. You know, how do we um, try to uh, engage and activate patients themselves, which frankly is not always possible, but I would argue um, the, the system has not uh, sort of taken a comprehensive approach to, to unlocking um, the changes that can occur when we truly think about patient engagement as mm -hmm. a key part of our jobs in the system. Um, and then the other area that I think of is is caregivers, you know, and I think about the, the patients who I take care of, particularly frail elder uh, patients or, um, you know, or disabled patients and the, the sort of unsung heroes of good care in those uh, cases are usually um, caregivers who, again, the, the health system has not really invested in supporting um, those people who do the the uh, you know, sort of invisible work um, behind the scenes um, that makes all the difference in whether or not a patient takes their medications or, um, you know, or, or whether they're actually adhering to a care plan that, um, that I may have gone over ad nauseum, you know, mm -hmm. with the patient, but which doesn't stick until something changes when they're outside of the office. Right. So is the time of the solo practice over, you know, one or two docs practicing in the community? How does that model of care, a small practice, fit into a population health management vision? It's a great question. The short answer is, is I don't know. You know, I think that it is uh, something that over the next um, five years or so, uh, we're, we're going to see how it segments out. Um, I do think we need a multiplicity of different ways, you know, sort of building on what we were talking about in terms of the importance of relationships in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, I do think in many cases, uh, the best relationships that exist are with that, uh, you know, that solo provider model patient, uh, sorry, doctors who have been in practice, you know, for decades who have built these very well-established, you know, longitudinal relationships um, with their patients. And, and I think there's actually something um, tied to that uh, in terms of their being in, in solo practice and a patient feeling as though I'm not interacting with this gargantuan, you know, sort of faceless health system, mm -hmm. but rather, um, you know, Dr. Provenzano. Um, that, that's, the, uh, that's a key aspect of a solo practice that I think has to be, um, has to continue, uh, you know, whether or not um, solo practices, uh, you know, are, are financially sustainable in um, value-based payment models. Um, I think I think the other thing is that uh, you know as we talk about some of these other services that have to be integrated into primary care, for example, integrating behavioral health into primary care, or making sure that there are ways to 
uh, augment the care that we deliver for the highest need patients. Those are the areas where I think it's really hard to understand how those shared uh, services, um, which require a certain degree of scale, how they mesh with uh, the one or two doc practice model. So I think that's the nut that has to be cracked with respect to um, to their thriving in a value-based payment environment. Right. Shifting gears a little bit, you wrote a really excellent piece in Archives Internal Medicine in 2012 with some colleagues, Neil Kalman and Diane Hauser. And this has to do with attribution, as we were talking about before. So kind of deciding who a patient belongs to. And it has financial implications. So, uh, you know, people really care about it. So you contended that ACO should have to do reporting on the quality metrics using two different denominators. So, you know, the numerator is, you know, um, the patients who got whatever service or had whatever um, process or outcome measure that you're looking at. And then the denominator, the first would be kind of the traditional one, so patients who are attributed to that health system, so they have a primary care doctor in that system. And then the second would be the expanded denominator. So that would, in addition, attribute patients to a health system if they'd ever been seen in that system. So if they went to the emergency room, if they saw a certain specialist in that system. So can you talk about that a little bit more? You know, why do you think this is a good idea? Yeah. Um, so I, I think this uh, is, is connected to the idea of um, of merging, you know, public health approaches and the way that we deliver health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and first, I should I should really credit um, Neil Kalman, uh, who's the um, the CEO of the Institute for Family Health here in New York City. Um, this is something that he uh, really pioneered within his own health system. You know, they started doing this expanded denominator um, approach to quality measurement uh, within their own system. Um, and, you know, the impetus for it was his concern that uh, as we you look only at attributed patients, are we missing the most marginalized patients, you know, the ones who have only glancing interactions with the healthcare system? And so, you know, it's fine to say that our, hypot- our hypertension control rate is 80% for attributed patients, but does that actually exclude those patients with uncontrolled blood pressure who have only come into the emergency room, you know, for their sporadic care. Um, And therefore, are we getting uh, actually a distorted picture of whether we are serving the people who most need, uh, you know, the health care that we're trying to deliver? Hmm. So, you know, so I think it's it's one more step toward this concentric circles approach um, where we start with attributed populations and we have to think uh, very deliberately about how we, you know, set those boundaries around who an attributed population is, mm-hmm. but then never lose sight of, uh, of the fact that there may be many other people in a community um, who, who have only those glancing interactions with a health system or none at all. Right. Um, the, the phrase that I like to use to encapsulate this is, you know, in medicine, we talk about seeing patients when we're on rounds or seeing patients in the clinic. Um, and, and it's really trying to get at the patients we do not see, you know, for right. whom uh, right. mental illness or, you know, some social barrier actually is preventing them from seeking care. Right. The other thing that I thought was intriguing about this idea is it might help reduce little bit of gaming the system where systems may try to uh, 
unattribute patients who are attributed to them for you know any kind of technical reason to try to you know reduce mm-hmm. their risk, um, mm-hmm. and this would hold everyone kind of more responsible. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point, and I'll I'll just point to one example again here in New York State, and and which our system is engaging in, um, which has to do with the HIV cascade of care. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, you you may have heard of this already, but uh, pretty pretty simple idea, really something that public health has been doing, you know, for decades, which is to look at the broadest denominator possible. You know, for HIV patients, again, anyone who's had any interaction with the health system and starting there and then progressively getting to the different points of uh, the care continuum. So from there, thinking about who the active patients are, you know, who are patients who are actually engaged in care, then, you know, how many are on antiretroviral medicines, and of those, you know, how many have their viral load suppressed, Hmm. and actually laying that out in a visual diagram, a representation that shows um, that uh, proportion of patients who are getting optimal care and are virally suppressed but how that compares to the overall caseload, you know, based on any uh, interaction with the health system, the so-called open cases. Mm. Um, and so we, we've just started developing that uh, over the last few months at New York City Health and Hospitals. Um, and it's remarkable to see how it, it changes people's perceptions of what needs to be done uh, in the delivery of care. Um, and it's really sparked more collaboration, for example, between our HIV clinic where our uh, patients who are established in care are well known to the physicians there, um, but started to to build bridges between those HIV doctors and emergency room doctors or you know primary care doctors who may have a very different perspective on uh, on patients who haven't made it to um, you know to become established in care. Right. So you you practice and work in New York, which is you know kind of the ultimate urban setting. And you've, you've written some about the challenges and opportunities of population health in an urban setting. And the biggest takeaway I took from one of the articles you wrote about was um, that we need to reduce barriers between public health, social services, and medical providers. A little bit like you've been talking about with this HIV care cascade. Can you talk about mm. that a little bit more? And, you know, what are specific policies or changes that you've found helpful in implementing reduced barriers between those, those different stakeholders? You know, anyone who is interested in health policy, I think, learns in their 101 class about the iron triangle in uh, in healthcare. You know, cost, access, and quality, um, and trying to to map the path that optimizes you know along those three dimensions. Um, I think looking forward, we're we're going to talk about another iron triangle in healthcare, and it's those three elements that that you described. Um, you know, public health, uh, particularly um, mental health uh, as part of public health is number one. Uh, number two is social services. Um, and then number three is what we more traditionally think of uh, as health care, which focuses more on physical health than on mental health. And I think, you know, mapping along that new iron triangle um, in health is, is uh, how... Uh, our system needs to change in the coming years. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do to get to a point where there's actually a meaningful nexus, you know, mm-hmm. among those uh, those different areas. Um, but I think it starts with um, with health systems having the humility to realize that so much of what contributes 
to, uh, to downstream health outcomes um, is actually related to the other, you know, two parts of that triangle and not just what we're doing in our clinics and in our hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it, it can be so challenging as to feel paralyzing, um, you know, in terms of, well, how does the health system solve the housing crisis in New York City? You know, how, how does the health system address affordable housing? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that needs to be broken down and become, you know, a little bit more soluble with respect to steps toward, uh, you know, that ultimate uh, collaboration. Um, and I'll just point to two things which I think help better shape the path toward, um, toward population health. Uh, the first is... Um, is connecting the patients who would most benefit from healthcare um, and supportive services. So, for example, patients with undiagnosed chronic conditions. So, you know, we have 13 million patients in the United States who actually don't know that they have high blood pressure. Mm. Um, And so thinking about, you know, those uh, patients and figuring out how to connect them to the low-hanging fruit of things that we know work well, you know, be they primary care on the healthcare side um, or, uh, you know, the, the existing community resources to support, uh, you know, people who are seeking employment or affordable housing or, uh, you know, other resources that address the, the stressors in their lives. Um, so that's the first thing that I would point out. And then the second is, um, is actually to develop strategies to address diseases that have a high quality of life burden, um, not just those with high mortality burdens. So, you know, one of the most interesting things that, um, that I've read uh, recently um, shows that the greatest reductions in quality of life are caused by things like low back and neck pain, depression, mm. you know, other musculoskeletal mm. complaints. And, you know, as a primary care doctor, that's not surprising to you. That's what we see, you know, so often mm-hmm. in... Uh, our clinics. Um, But, you know, and so we have a a specific um, vantage point, you know, to understand and to try to treat those quality of life concerns. But I would say public health as a field um, tends to prioritize um, conditions that have high mortality burdens over high morbidity burdens. Um, And so, you know, I think uh, when we talk about uh, convergence in those two fields, it's trying to bring some of the same approaches that have been so successful in public health um, to address those uh, those diseases that have high quality of life burdens also. Yeah. I feel like that's like a microcosm of a visit I have every week where someone comes in and all they want to talk about is their back pain and all I want to talk about is their high blood pressure or their diabetes and center control. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I really resonate with that. And, you know, so so we've learned strategies, right? You have to address the knee pain yep. before you can talk about the high blood pressure. Yep, yep. Um, and that you're exactly right. That's a microcosm of what needs to be done more broadly in the health system. Yeah. So a lot of these kind of concepts and ways of thinking about population health could transfer to a rural setting. But do you have any other specific ideas about how population health could be optimally implemented in a rural health center kind of setting? I had the um, privilege of 
uh, of serving as a White House fellow um, a few years ago, and part of my responsibilities for that uh, was actually to be the representative from the Department of Veterans Affairs to the White House Rural Council. Hmm. Um, so I had the chance to learn, you know, quite a bit about uh, health issues in rural settings. So one, you know, data point that sticks out for me is that uh, residents of rural communities travel an average of 17.5 miles for health care uh, compared to 8.3 miles uh, for, for people living in more urban areas. So, you know, I think, um, I think a couple of things flow from, uh, from what I learned through that experience. One is that um, so much of it is about access to care. Uh, and so we've seen, you know, some of the most promising innovations with respect to expanding access actually um, developed to, uh, you know, to address patients' needs in more rural settings. So, uh, so I'll point to the VA, you know, um, where I worked for, uh, for a little bit over a year, where they developed, you know, specific programs around um, using telehealth uh, and particularly telemental health to address the needs of patients in, in rural settings. So I think, uh, you know, I think that's one area where there's been considerable innovation that has broader applicability than just, uh, than just in rural communities. Um, but then the second thing is that there are also natural advantages that, um, you know, that certainly a number of disadvantages with respect to, uh, you know, delivering healthcare in rural settings, but also some natural advantages. Um, and the one that comes to mind is when we talk about, you know, a more geographic approach um, to population health, uh, that's actually more feasible in rural areas where it's not New York City where you have dozens of health systems uh, and patients who, you know, sort of get care from a multiplicity of those different systems. Usually it's, uh, it's one uh, or two um, systems uh, at maximum who cover a wide swath of, uh, you know, of different parts of our country. Um, and so for the accountability, you know, that you need uh, to do population health well, that actually matches up quite nicely with, with that situation. Yeah. What do you see as a population health approach to the opiate crisis? A lot of, as you talked about initially, a lot of population health is grounded in measurement and looking at data. So you know, what should we be measuring to know if we're improving the situation, and, and how should we think about that in a big picture? Well, the first thing that I would I would cite is um, there was a, a fantastic uh, report uh, by the Surgeon General addressing addiction in America. Um, it came out last fall, um, you know, a pioneering report uh, in terms of addressing uh, addiction broadly, um, but then particularly the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I learned a lot from uh, the strategies that were described in that report, um, particularly the need to expand access to medication-assisted treatment, um, things like buprenorphine, uh, methadone, um, you know, other ways to, um, to take care of, of, of patients who have opioid use disorder. Um, but to get more specifically at your question in terms of, of measurement, um, in terms of, you know, gauging how well are we doing uh, in addressing the opioid crisis, um, there's another piece that came out. Uh, I think it was the Health Affairs blog, um, and Dr. Robin Williams was the lead author, uh, essentially taking that HIV care cascade that I mentioned earlier and drawing the analogy that that's what we need to 
um, to measure how we're doing with respect to um, taking care of patients with uh, with opioid use disorder. Mm. So they look at you know the overall number of people uh, who have uh, opioid use disorder, how many of them are actually diagnosed, and there's a significant voltage drop there. Mm. Then you know how many are engaged in care? Again, you know another significant drop. Um, how many of them have initiated medication-assisted treatment, then how many of them are actually retained in care longitudinally? I think they use a cutoff of like six months mm. to determine that. Um, and then finally, you know, sort of the analog of uh, viral load suppression and HIV care, how many patients with opioid use disorder actually have continuous abstinence? Mm. Um, and, you know, if we think about that type of cascade both at the national level, but then also, you know, for each system to track uh, the, the patients that they respectively take care of for opioid use disorder. I think that's the most promising way um, for us to shine a light on, uh, on how much uh, unmet need there is for that population. Sure. And for listeners, we'll put links to both of those articles on our website. So last question. You know, we've been talking a lot about data, and that that requires a lot of work to collect it and decide what to collect, you know, to provide it for payers and stakeholders who are always looking for metrics that are slightly different numerators and denominators and sometimes, you know, really extensive reporting requirements. So I think especially in the community setting and for smaller health systems or individual clinics, it feels like we spend more time and resources measuring and reporting than actually you know, implementing meaningful interventions. So, you know, do you have this frustration even in a really large health system? And and how do we go about streamlining things? Yeah, we we absolutely have that um, same frustration. We actually did uh, an exercise to look at all of the different um, metrics that we were responsible just for external reporting on. uh, And we found there were over 500 uh, measures, you know, across the alphabet soup of, of different, you know, measure sets. Um, and PQA, PCMH, you know, our ACO, mm-hmm. our Medicaid waiver, which is known as DISRIP. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we tried to winnow those 500 measures down into the areas where um, there was the most significant overlap um, and then use uh, kind of consensus measures for the specific clinical areas, you know, that the measures touch upon. Um, particularly uh, consensus measures endorsed by the National Quality Forum, the NQF. Mm-hmm. Um, but y- your your point is absolutely true. And again, there's a paper that comes to mind um, from uh, Health Affairs, also by Larry Casalino and his team, um, that showed that primary care practices spend 19.1 hours of physician and staff time per physician per week dealing with the quality requirements of external entities. Um, So a total burden, just they looked at just four specialties. One of those was primary care, but just across those four specialties, um, they estimated $15.4 billion were spent um, annually across those four specialties just to meet that quality reporting burden. Um, and so it really put into stark relief for me, you know, what are we getting for that money? Do we really think that, uh, you know, that the improvements in care delivery um, match up with that tremendous reporting burden? Um, and I think the answer is no. 
definitely um, not. But it's, a, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a more complex problem than just saying, you know, we need to, uh, we need to winnow down the list of, right. of measures, which is the place to start, I agree. And mm-hmm. there was a nice um, National Academy of Medicine report that uh, proposed what those core measures would look like. But, but the reason that I say it's more complicated is that we both need fewer measures as well as better measures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are some things that I think you would agree that we don't measure very well at all. You know, I would say the whole category of patient-reported outcomes, you know, right. getting at, for example, um, actually assessing patients' quality of life, that's an area where we need, um, we need innovation and new measures. So, uh, so I think the first step is, Yes, you know, more harmonization, more consensus around a smaller set of measures, but at the same time, um, focusing on whether uh, even that smaller set of measures actually gets at what matters to patients um, and, and where it doesn't to, uh, to actually develop new measures to do that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dave. This was so interesting. Thanks again, Audrey, for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Review Assistance. I'm Audrey Provenzano. You can find links with more information about our guest Dave, his publications, and links to all the articles we discussed on our website, www.rospod.org. If you enjoy the show, a quick reminder to please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen, and share us in social media. Tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast, and you can check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash You can email me at audrey at rospod.org. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks for listening. Music